welcome to RushCast. My name is Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening to our show. We're happy to have you here. This week, we're talking about one of my top three favorite albums, Snakes and Arrows, in our 2016 album series, No Album, Left Behind. And today, we have another really cool opportunity because I don't have to talk to somebody on the phone. I could talk to them in person, and you can hear a uh, an audio clip from that person that sounds much, much clearer. Uh, help me welcome back correspondent Chad Whitco to RushCast. How's it going, man? It's going good, Jay. It's cool to have you here, and I listened to an old RushCast, which I never do. I just like only listen to an old one and see what those sounded like, and it just happened to be the one where you were here in studio a year ago, right, right, uh, right after our Madison Square Garden show. Right, that's right. So that was a weird coincidence. Um, so we both love this album. We were both kind of introduced into the catalog at the same time, and this was our first experience with a new release. Yeah, sort of for me. Um, I know for you that's definitely true. For myself, you know, I was exposed to a vinyl of moving pictures as a kid, uh-huh. uh, and I got into Rush when I was going into college, but it was a like greatest hits collection type of thing, and I didn't know the albums that those songs came off of. Uh, and then my own real like foray into Rush and like, this is it. Like, this is my band. This is who I'm getting into uh, was right with uh, Rush and Rio. And then so Snakes and Arrows was the first one afterwards that mm-hmm. I was like, all right, here's the first release. So not the first exposure to it per se, but certainly my f- the first that was like under my own interest. So we initially said that the album series w- would include everything, including feedback and it will. Uh, this is the slot for feedback in terms of chronological order with the albums. But we're going to reverse it with Snakes and Arrows just simply for scheduling reasons. Uh, uh, it's all Jeff Garrett's fault because he's doing feedback. Uh, and he emailed me and he was like, I can't do it. We have to switch it. And I'm totally kidding because that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And I thought, I'm going to blame him for, yeah, <laughs> for the switch. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jeff Garrett will be back. Uh, he's our hold your fire so support group leader, uh, all seeing God, and he will do feedback with me next week. Even though feedback was before snakes, um, and plus we have Chad in studio, so we wanted to take advantage of that. So um, in general, I think Snakes and Arrows is a sonically perfect record. Everybody's got the best tone, in my opinion, that they ever had. Uh, and I can't really speak to the drums so much. Like I don't know a ton about drum sound but uh i definitely like it on snakes i think the songwriting especially probably more than anything the songwriting is so dialed in at this point in their career and on this uh record it's so perfectly executed in the studio uh the songs transfer over to the live setting so so nicely Mm -hmm. that that's what makes this record so high up for me and i'm sure i'm positive there's emotion attached to it because that's my own theory right right yeah you pointed out you i'm always uh, i'm always saying that the album you're introduced to initially has the biggest uh is usually at the top for you right um but i think the songwriting is what when people ask me no why why do you like it so much i think it's the songwriting yeah i think the songwriting is much better than clockwork angels yeah i do too um i think you know, a lot of times with Snakes, you talk about where it is in the catalog, and I think Snakes is kind of the culmination of the work in progress and sound and everything starting back at Counterparts. 
I think you go through counterparts and move forward and it kind of peaks up at Snakes and Arrows. I think it dips down a little bit for Clockwork Angels. I really love that album. Uh, however, I think Snakes is is a little superior. It's a more mature uh, approach. I don't think you can argue that. Like, I know there's people that really dig Clockwork. Yeah, and I, I mean, I love it too. But it's a bit more riffy than right. Snakes. Uh, the I've mentioned before how it doesn't. It's not very versatile in terms of the key centers that it utilizes. Right. Uh, from like a music theory point of view, uh, so for somebody who's Listening for something a little bit more complex, Clockwork doesn't give that to me. Clockwork gives me something that's heavier and, and more gritty. Right. But I think Snakes and Arrows has just as much as that of that grit. It's just kind of like done in a more tasteful way. It's a little bit of a. It's a little smoother of an album, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, Clockwork, you know, you're right. It does have that grit. Has that high energy. Uh, the great riffs, and I love it for those exact reasons. Uh, I love Clockwork as well because. You know, hey, it's it's this whole concept album, right? Uh, I think Snakes, though, Snakes is very thematic in its own right. I think a lot of how because the point I was going to make is that from from the break to now we have Vapor Trails, Snakes, and Clockwork. Snakes is the only one that's just a collection of songs and not a concept album, right? And that's cool to me because to me that's when Rush is best when they don't say let's make an album that's A B C. Let's make an album that's this, that, and the other thing. Right. They said, let's just write. I think that's when we get the best material. So what's thematic? Uh, I agree. I think it is very much that whole process. Like they just say, hey, like let's write some tunes. Let's not have any like concepts behind it per se. It's not Clockwork Angels with how that is. Uh, My understanding though is a lot of the writing came from Neil's experience traveling on the road. And a lot of it is kind of self-reflection and investigation into things like faith. And Mm -hmm. um, there's some other things that I think it touches upon that I'll have to kind of think about as we're Mm -hmm. going on. But uh, I think think there's a lot of, for me, a lot of the songs deal with like a a personal, a personal um, exploration, like self-exploration. I don't know. They seem very internal in, in their nature. Uh, so in that way, I think it's kind of thematic. You know, it's not like talking about like socialism or you know some political standpoint or you know some off the beat or, or sci-fi or, sci-fi, or whatever right. it might be. Yeah, I think it's it's thematic and it's it's more self-centered in a sense. Sure, interesting. Well, let's get into the tracks here because I think I don't think there's a weak track on this album, and I know you're the biggest. I mean, I mean there are tracks that are looked down upon in a way. Right. And you're the biggest defender of those tracks. So we'll get we'll get there. Yeah. Um Far Cry is a song that I think you along with Secret Touch and see there there aren't many maybe Marathon. There aren't many tracks I'm willing to throw into this group. Far Cry is a song I think you can you can say this is Rush. Boom, one track. Right. Far Cry. Here yeah. you go. Yeah, I agree. I think uh you know, it comes right out of the gate pretty heavy. And it's got a lot of interplay uh, between the, the you know the members. It's there's a lot of heaviness to it. It's riffy in some sense. Uh, I think it's quintessentially Rush from this era, and I think there's a reason why it's been played. I think on every tour since mm-hmm. it was it was released. And also look at the slots that it's been in. It's been it's been given some pretty important roles in the set list. Like it closed out time machine, I believe before the, the encore, right? It closed out the show. It closed out the 
set of um I think on snakes of clockwork. Wasn't it on Snakes too? Wasn't it like the Snakes? It was the opener of the second sec- set. Right. So it's either been at the very beginning or very end of a set since then. Right. Yeah. So it's very important. I know when it was on R forty, um, after seeing it live. A bunch oh, that's of- right. Except for R forty. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why that wasn't in any particular slot. But uh, for us seeing it, you know, there's a sense when it started off. It's like, oh, I really wish they would have done something we haven't heard from Snakes yet. As always. Right. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy it every time, and when I saw the show R40 before you, uh, I took Lauren, my wife, with me, and she's a huge fan of Far Cry. So she was just, you know, just going ballistic on it. She loved it. She she was having such a good time, and to look over and see her enjoying herself to that song, I was I couldn't have been happier that it was in the set. Um, and you can see it. It's it's one of those songs that for whatever reason you look out in the audience when they're playing it, and it it gets universal. Uh, response from everybody mm-hmm. it's, it's even if you don't really know it i think it's just got an energy that people gravitate towards so yeah it has it has like a sort of vibe to it it's a very optimistic sound regardless of what the lyrics may say it's a very uplifting kind of sound and i that opening chug is one of my especially at the time one of my favorite sounds one of my favorite parts of rush similar to the the chug part in secret touch Da-da-da. You know, it's it's got it's a rhythmic thing on one chord, a big low heavy distortion chord. Uh, So when the anticipation for this album coming out was very high for me, yeah. And when we got that single so far out in advance, I thought, yeah, like that's that's what I want a new Rush album to sound like. It's the first time I've ever had new Rush material, right? And this is what I always wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was. I remember getting the the release of it on the radio and you know I said you know coming up you know new rush or whatever after the break that type of thing and I remember hearing it and I was like you know this is this is great you know as as they're getting older for some reason they're they're matching where I'm at in my sense of age or whatever you know just it really struck a chord with me in, in its own way it wasn't it wasn't something like out of the 80s where it was a little lighter in the shoes you know it, it kind of had some beef behind it and um the sense of of hope and you know and no pun intended, right? Yeah. I imagine if you're a fan, probably everybody but the two of us, right. for the most part, listening to this, and and you were around for the release of Vapor Trails, you probably hear this single Far Cry and breathe the biggest breath of fresh air, a big sigh of relief, and say, thank God it's not... Thank God that Vapor Trails sound is not the norm. Right. You know, you're yeah. like, oh, we've we've corrected it yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and, and again, we talk about how we won't talk about Vapor Trails. The the original is is perfect, like it's great, but uh, you know the remix did some better things for it. But uh, I'm not discounting the original. Sure. What I'm saying, uh, but yeah, Far Cry is great, and I, it's I don't I'm not quite at the point where I'm like sick of hearing it live. Of course, I'd rather I'd rather hear something else that I haven't heard, but that's always the case. Right. When I hear Red Barchetta. Or, I'm sorry, not Red Barchetta. When I hear Red Sector A live, that's when my heart sinks a little bit. <laughs> that's, uh, however, I watched uh, Clockwork Live last night. Right. Yeah, and that. that song with the string section is delicious. But uh, I still, you know, he's not playing his bass at all. The song for me is not, like, outstanding. Right. You know, so. Yeah, yeah the it's there are some songs in their catalog that you certainly would love to have swapped out for songs you've yet to hear. 
And of course, there's songs that you could hear every show and be perfectly happy with. Uh, I think Far Cry for me is somewhere in between. Like, I love it, but if it's not in the set, I'm not going to cry about it. Yeah. Well, that leaves room for you and I to grow. So <laughs> Yeah, here uh. we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's move on. So Armor and Sword is in a way like the substitute opener for this record because I had the single for so long, Far Cry. Mm-hmm. When I got the full record, I had no interest in Far Cry. Right. So the record started at the second track for me. I, I knew every note of Far Cry, uh, and I was sick of it in a sense. But uh, Armor and Sword has one of the most unique, I think, openings with that drum part. We get this like real slow, laid-back groove. And, and I don't think we've heard anything similar to that elsewhere. No, I don't think so. Uh, f- for me, I felt the same. And, you know, Far Cry, I kind of wore myself out on. So when the album was in my hands... You know, Arm and Sword was like this number one slot, you know, because I would skip right to it in a sense. Uh, Arm and Sword was actually one of my early favorites for this album. And it might be because of that very reason. You know, it's it's a great tune. It's got a lot of great moments. Uh, and the sound is, I think, you know, the whole album's well this is well a, done. This is a very dark song at times. Um, it creates this wash of sound that I'm very fond of. Uh, for instance, one thing we didn't leave uh, in 2002, and something we did take from Vapor Trails, was the guitar layering. And that's right. very evident on Armor and Sword. Um, even before the first lyrics come in, there's these big, open-sounding spaces of sound uh, right before like the acoustic guitar and then the Snakes and Arrows, A Child is Air 2, and all that. Mm-hmm. That those These big landscapes that are created with these open like Alex Lifeson-esque yeah. sort of landscapes and, and and that's what I come I've come to love from that track. Yeah, I, I really love as you said like the soundscape of it. I was listening to it the other day when I was traveling and there's something about it when you hear it it just for me it just latches on to me the sound itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think lyrically uh, there's a few elements of the song that I really connect with uh, particularly you know, like the lines that, you know, no one gets to heaven without a fight. And I don't mean this in any religious sense, but just the sense of getting somewhere that, you know, you ultimately want to end up. Anything good you need to work for, right. essentially. And, and you know, I feel like a large portion of my young life, it's always been this feeling of, you know, you, you work hard and you, you get something good from it and you earn it. And so I, that sentimentality, I guess, you know, I, I can really connect with. Uh, so some elements of that, yeah, I, I totally connect with and, and love the song for. Uh, the sound is great. I think Alex's solo on it is one that I really, really love as well. Uh, it's just, it's just got such, I guess, suspense in it. It's a very raw kind of sound too. Yeah. In terms of his tone, sort of like a, I, I talk about his soaring sound, um, yeah. like counterparts and, and such. This is more of like a screechy, kind of like an old Getty Lee singing kind of. Yeah. It's it's grunting and it's it's kind of uh, distressed in a way. That solo. Yeah, it, it's it's something though that I just I think you know Alex just totally nailed for that particular track. And what a cool ending. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, to have everybody drop out just the acoustic guitar and then everybody back in for, or maybe not everybody, but most people back in, uh, most parts. 
Yeah, it's just I think it's a one of the darker sections of the record. Yeah. It's interesting that it's in that slot too for that. Yeah, because you wouldn't expect that normally. And let's look at the second, you know, the uh, the on deck position for all the other records. Uh, Red Barchetta, right? Yep. Second. Uh, Ceiling Unlimited. You know, these are these are tra- it's stick it out. What's uh, on signals? Is it Analog Kid? Analog Kid. Grand yeah. Designs. These the second slot is often very similar to the first slot in my opinion yeah. there are people that argue analog kids should have been first on that record or, or whatever um so you're right that's it's sort of deceptive to ha- i would have guessed it would have been in the wish them well spot which i'm gonna start saying regularly because <laughs> yeah. i think that's just the best it tells you exactly what it is right the wish them well spot second to last uh okay so our, uh work in them angels right yeah this is uh I remember the the my buddy from high school that I was hanging out with when this record came out and we were he he liked Rush he went and saw Rush each time they came to town uh and he gave Snakes and Arrows a shot but I remember after a few months he said Snakes and Arrows is just like everything is just working them angels mm. and like that's such a silly stupid <laughs> analysis but part of that always kind of stuck with me like to him Working them angels is how the record sounds like, like that's that's representative of the rest of the record, and I think that says something. Like sonically, or like, I just think, like you how? know, when you listen to a, like you listen to, uh, you listen to counterparts. Animate is like, right? I get you. Animate is tells you what it, it kind of encompasses the rest of the record, and it's to me that's how I took that. It's like he thinks working them angels, that might mean it has the biggest hooks. Maybe it just sticks in his head the most. Right, but I mean, let's talk about it. You and me, like, how wh- how did you uh, respond to first hearing this track? Uh, well, when I first heard it, I I really liked it. Um, I liked a lot of it. You know, a lot of the songs on the album. So there wasn't much that I didn't like. Um, I really did like it. The you know the whole thing about working them angels. I'm not you know as I mentioned a little while ago. Like when it comes to like religious stuff, I don't really adhere to any of that type of stuff. So. I understand that he's he's not talking about it like always in that sense, but sometimes when you get like those types of titles in there, they get a little cliche for me in a sense. And you get a little worn out on Neil Peart, is what you're saying. Yeah, no, he not, wears you out just a little yeah. bit. <laughs> no, not at all, Neil. <laughs> he's um, a listener, you know. Oh, absolutely. I <laughs> wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I'm glad you're addressing him directly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's a it's a really good song, and I like that there's that kind of depth in and out of the song uh sonically you know with the uh what's the uh, instrument that alex uses the i always thought it was a mandolin but i think it's a mandola i think is the I actual thought it was like a was it a bazooki or whatever those things are called i don't know i know it's a it's a different it's not guitar you're talking about the solo yeah um I know what it looks like, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's huge, like round body, and yeah, like kind of, almost like a circle, yeah. a very small instrument. Um, I don't know. I mean, geez, I should have looked that up. Yeah, should have done some. Research. Yeah, I should have done some research. I thought I knew everything about this record. Yeah, uh, but it, it is a nice change of pace. Now, what I like about this record, and I'm realizing as we go through it track by track, there's sort of it sort of sort of highlights the marriage between the acoustic part and the electric part from Alex. Like there's a lot of that. Interplay. Most, yeah. Most of these tracks 
highlight that and you hear it on this one think about the end of the song where they say working them angels and then everybody hits that last you can hear right there there's acoustic and electric that have 50 50 completely equal roles yeah right or like maybe the beginning of far cry it always sort of bugged me live where alex plays the acoustic part which is just going strum 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 really fast right and getty's doing the rhythmic part but i i need there's that electric guitar part that's completely vacant. Right. And I need that. That's what I'm missing. You know, he can't do them both, but. Yeah. Uh, I think you hear it on Working Them Angels as well. This sort of both of them playing the same equally important role. I was actually thinking about that uh, when I was driving uh, down to the, the city or um, down to Pennsylvania yesterday before coming to the city today. And I was listening to the album for review. Was was that element of the acoustic in in the album and just how how strong it is mm-hmm. and how prominent it is and also how equally shared it is, like you said, with Electric. And yeah, it's this is another song that I was really happy to see live. Uh, I think, was it Time Machine it was on as well? Was there another? Yeah, the next tour, they played it as yeah. well. Yep. Did it Did it go on any clockwork? No, but I remember Far Cry and Working the Angels made it on to the next, the yeah. next tour. Yeah. I was not surprised by that. Yeah. In fact, I, I think... I remember saying those two tracks and maybe a couple others would make it on. That's always something interesting to me. What the the tour following a new album, what gets what carried over, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's something I was going to bring up in our in our talk today was, you know, what what songs off Snakes besides Far Cry perhaps uh, you know, with future tours is likely to 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 make it back into rotation. Um, you know, maybe we can talk about that once we get through the tracks or, you know, whatever, but it is an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting thought. Well, we're talking about acoustic guitar and it being featured more so than any other record, essentially. And we move on to maybe the best example of that in uh, the larger bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Larger bowl. It's, it's honestly, it might be my least favorite on the, on the album. I liked it for a little while, but it quickly fell out of favor for me. And I think it's very well done. I think the the lyrics are you know have a lot of power behind them. I like the writing style that he did with where the lines fall into to place and mm-hmm. how it rotates through. Uh, and I think you know there's some great moments with like Alex's guitar playing, like the solo is the solo is really really nice. Yeah, I, it's that's a solo I go to um, when we're talking about best solos. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of moments like that on on the on the track, but there's a there's a, a sonic quality to it that I don't really care for as much compared to the rest of the album, and I, it's poppy. I, well, I also it, it's also folky. I, like if you play it on acoustic guitar, it's those are f- pretty basic I think chords. It's, I think it's also uh, Getty's singing too, like the whoa whoa's in the beginning. I don't know they just don't do it for me. Well, couldn't you look at it as this is the height of Getty's? explorations with vocal harmonies this this track specifically yeah you could like, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on there but this is a song i point to when people say what does digestible mean uh the larger bowl that's that's digest digestible it's four right. chords there's no weird time signatures there's no weird rhythms no you absolutely know? not it's just straightforward and there's that's not a bad thing i'm not i'm saying that like it's uh i'm like condescending or whatever but like that's a good thing that that's what makes a good album is when you have some diversity. Yeah, and I won't ever like just skip over it. You know, I I think it's a good tune, 
But it's just on the album, it's just not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised they played it live? Because I was. Looking back, because it was only on the Snakes tour, right? Yeah, but that tour so, featured so many well, that's tracks. The thing. Looking back on it, I, I'm not surprised because of how many tracks they played. Uh, but yeah, in some sense, yes. I think that there's other tracks that they didn't play that are stronger tracks for mm-hmm. a live show than the larger bowl. I'll give you this. The woes didn't work for me live. Live, I thought they sounded funny. Yeah, I agree. Or just, just kind of irked me or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder if the fact that Vapor Trails featured so little Vapor Trails material on the tour, I wonder if that's maybe the reason Snakes and Arrows was almost featured exclusively, and then the subsequent album, Clockwork, was featured in its entirety. Let's think about this. Vapor Trails. Hardly any of it was played live on that tour. The next tour, all but three tracks were played live. The next tour, all of Moving Pictures was played live. The next tour, all of Clockwork was played live. Okay? There's like that progression from move from uh, Vapor Trails. Maybe maybe that had an impact on them. Yeah, I don't I still don't understand the disconnect for them in the vapor trails material i understand the theories behind why you know perhaps with everything going on for neil and maybe the the material is too close to heart for him in a sense but yeah it's a huge jump i mean it really is and and you and i called their bluff last year when they're like we're not playing anything from vapor trails we're like give me a break yeah yes you are yeah. and they played one and then they played a brand new one right and so on that old episode we were both like yeah we we knew that was yeah, not yeah for be sure the case. uh all right let's let's move on to a track i thought was going to be featured on our four uh r40 because i think it's a track that they like i think it's a track where that will age well and they'll look back at it and go yeah that was that was really well written um and I think it's a track that represents the album. A lot like Far Cry. Like this is a lot like how Far Cry represents the band. Spindrift represents Snakes and Arrows, I think. Yeah. Along with maybe a couple other tracks. I would agree with that. I think it's a it's a a, a song that has a lot of the qualities that they wanted to get out of the album. Mm-hmm. And I think they, you know, were able to wrap that up into the the package for that song. I think that song has an energy that's really unlike a lot of their other, I mean, definitely a lot of their other songs, but also a lot of the other songs, in a sense, on that album itself. Uh, there's a different quality to it almost for me when I listen to it. Um, one of the things that I still listen to and I, I try to find out is really what the song's about. It's, a, it's an interesting song, like trying yeah, to... Yeah, it's like, a little difficult to unwrap. Yeah. Like lyrically, it's just trying to trying to figure that out. And I think as I was saying about the song being thematic, I think that there is a sense of in the song, you know, it's a, I don't know. What do you think the song's about? I, there's a sense that it's almost like about someone's kind of like feelings and emotions and seeing something happen almost like, I, I don't know. It's a tough one. I gave up trying to, to decipher those a long yeah. time ago. Like any new lyric. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's got but multiple it, layers. Yeah. I'd, I don't know. I, I don't have an analysis for you. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's something I've looked into in the past, but it's never the first thing I'm interested in. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I look at Spindrift and I notice the part where he says, a little closer to you. Uh, the guitar is sort of like a test for echo sort of sound there. 
And uh, otherwise, it's sort of a vapor trails kind of, like a stars look down kind of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the guitar work is really um, unique on that song. Yeah, I like the the you know how the song comes in too, and I also like how they reprise that at the end of the song. Yes. I think that's see that's good songwriting. Yeah, you know that that's construction and that's an important part. Because often there's those moments where something happens in the beginning and you want to hear it again, and they just let it go and you don't get it. Yeah. yeah. And we move on to the first instrumental of a of an album that has three instrumentals. I remember the the day. Cause we, I still had to get the hard copy of this record when it came out. And my dad got it first, so he saw the track list and he called me at. Right when I got home, I called him at work, from school, and he said, uh, "It's got three instrumentals on it." And I'm like, "What? Yeah, <laughs> what? Vapor Trails had none. You know, a lot of albums had none. Three instrumentals, and I mean, two. It really, really two instrumentals, right? And one like special song, but." uh Two big, fat, chunky ones, too. So let's talk about the biggest, the main monkey business. You and I did a ranking a long time ago. A long time ago. Of the instrumentals. And uh, the main monkey business was at or near the top. Yeah, I think it might have been number one for both of us. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, This is what I want a Rush instrumental to be. And also, we're talking about like songs that are fun to play on the bass. This is uh, like two, three, maybe one, two, three, four, something like that. This is a fun one. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I, I think there's going to be a lot of listeners that are going to hear and say, what do you mean that that's the, the right. best yeah, instrumental? Yeah. You know, I know that Neil thinks that, at least at the time, that Leave That Thing Alone was, um, right? Was that the one? That that's he, the one, he, yeah. yeah. So he said that he felt that that was like their best instrumental. And I agree. Like, that's a great instrumental. I think that this one's even better. You think if they asked him that same question again, he would he'd probably say main monkey business. It, it, it'd be close. It'd mm-hmm. be close. Uh, it's one that I was really glad to see live again on R40. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, sure. La Via and YYZ, they're classics in their own right. They're also an exercise, I think, in, in what you can do with a song. I think this one's really mature in how it is. And, it's a beast. Like it just, you know, it moves you. It's it's like a train rolling down the tracks. Is, yeah. And and there's all these moments where every instrument gets to kind of like shine a little bit. You know, from the beginning with Neil's like heavy floor tom, you know, during that one break to you know parts where you know Alex's guitar breaks through or Getty's bass. It's it's great. It, this this tells a story, an instrumental that tells a story. I don't think YYZ tells a story. I think that's the difference. And I'm not I'm not discounting YYZ. But like you said, YYZ is like let's let's shred right, yeah, <laughs> for a yeah. little bit yeah. and uh, move our fingers fast and 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 make cool noises yeah. and put them together in a song. That sounds so bad. It sounds like I'm tearing that song apart. Yeah. No, but I mean you're not. I totally hear you because YYZ is a really great song in its own right. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it's a masterfully written song, masterfully executed. I mean, but wouldn't you say La Via does tell a story in a similar way? I think La Via in some senses out of all their instrumentals has the the best like dynamic range. Arc, right? Yeah. yeah. It's I think it's great. And Alex's guitar work in that I think is perfect mm-hmm. um during the solo. But really, I mean, just as far as like wrapping it up into one package, I think it doesn't go too long. I think it's long, which is nice, but it's not too long. It's not too 
like riffy and just trying to like plow you over with, you know, just shredding quality, you know, material. I think it's it's really great. It's it's just this nice package. It's tastefully done. It moves along. It tells a story, and every instrument has moments to shine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing it again live. Yeah, me either. A third time. The way the wind blows is uh, long, and I think if I had one criticism, it would be I could do without the intro. I could the, the, I, the drum intro. Yeah, I could I could take this as. And then that's the start of the tune. Sure. Uh, however, it's it's got like that Stevie Ray sort of um, guitar sound, something very different, uh, a very bluesy th- sort of vibe. It's um, I don't want to say a throwback, but kind of a nod to some older themes mm-hmm. or styles. Yeah. And a very very cool that the. You know, in the in the same way, working them angels is in three, which is kind of different, and the verses and the choruses are kind of opposite mm-hmm. with heavy and 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 um, the release of that heaviness. We get that with the way the wind blows, where uh, I think it's every verse has a little bit of a different drumming thing happening. Yeah, um, the chorus is like very soft and and lifting, and then the the driving heavy part is in the verse, like. These are all very different things that we're hearing on Snakes and Arrows. Yeah, I, I really like uh, a few things. I really like the riffs that, you know, let's, I mean, it's just, I like the, the, the riffiness, I guess, during the Now the it verses. comes to this. Da-na, da-na, yeah. And just like, and also like the bass fills that Getty's doing, they're simple in a sense, but they just kind of, you know, build and, and mm-hmm. amp it up. But regarding the the drum thing, one of my favorite moments for me with this album is I bought the the CD and it came with the documentary, um, the Game of Snakes and Arrows or whatever mm-hmm. it's called, where they show yeah, them in great. they show them in the studio, which I wish they did for every album. Yes, they should. Yeah, I mean it's just the best part. Yep. And when they show the the part of recording, you know, the way the wind blows, and uh, their producer was Nick, right? Mm-hmm. And he comes up to them. They, they recorded everything. Neil just got done laying down the drum tracks. And he's like, you know, I think you can do this better. Mm-hmm. And he comes to Neil and he's like, okay, so I have this idea. I want you to take every verse and give it a different treatment on the drums. And, you know, you can see Neil like sitting there like rubbing his head like, how am I going to do this? Like, you know, because everything he does, he kind of, I think, choreographs ahead a little bit. Uh-huh. And so here he is. I think this is the start, perhaps, of, of some of that improvisational sense yeah. that might follow. Yeah. And, you know, you see him, and then they just show, like, they show him in the studio playing along. You can't hear the song. And then they, they, they pump up the volume of the rest of the song as the listeners you're watching, and you see how his drum work is coming into that mix. And I mean, he just kills it. And mm-hmm. you can see, you know, Getty in the studio and Alex just like watching him going like, oh my God, like he's just tearing it up. It's just a really We great should point moment. out Main Monkey Business was recorded under Nick's suggestion live. Yeah. Right? As a, as a group. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know back in the day what level of their instrumentals were like that, mm-hmm. but I think that really shows on that. Yes. That might be... We could attribute maybe a bunch of the energy from that song to that, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, so uh, then we get another instrumental, Hope. And uh, this is a track that I think deserves to be performed and deserves recognition. 
because they think it's beautiful. Yeah, I it is it, beautiful. I mean, I don't. I'm not like breaking new ground. <laughs> hey, it, everybody. I don't know if you've heard Hope, but it's beautiful. I I don't think it's a throwaway track. I think some people will think it is. Even on the album, I don't think it's a throwaway track. Live, sure, it gives Alex a great space to kind of do that and then add some other work on top of that at the end, maybe, or, or go into something else before an actual like actual song. Mm-hmm. Quotes. Um, and you say that because the band didn't write it. Alex wrote it. Right. With somebody else as well. But, but for me, though, I think it's, it's beautifully done. I like, I like the way it's written um, on the 12th string, and it's wonderfully executed and it's i think it serves a great um you know it, it serves a great purpose on the album it, it kind of it does breaks. and it's placed nicely it breaks it up a little bit and it kind of sets you up emotionally for what the next like three or four tracks you're going to hear mm-hmm. there's not much to say about it no i i because there's there's i don't i'm not a guitarist so i can't you know even though i play bass i can't really critique well i'll it. say that i mean i'm not a not a guitars primarily but i'll play this song a lot yeah because it's in a fancy tuning it's an open tuning meaning you can hit all the strings it'll play a nice chord yeah uh without your left hand and it's uh it's not particularly hard and i think that's representative of alex's playing to a degree like i'm not saying his playing isn't difficult but it's it's playing every musician learns you know tricks the trade music does not need to be difficult to be beautiful right and we move to Oh man, when I when I heard Getty say on Time Machine, we played a bunch of Snakes and Arrows tracks and we forgot one that we really love, and he said we're gonna play Faithless. I thought, thank God because I think it's I think it's such a great tune mm. Mus- musically. Like I can ly- lyrics are the last thing I analyze. Sure, uh, I ne- I would never say I love this song because of its lyrics. If the music if I don't dig the music, I don't care. Yeah, I'm with you. 100%. You know so. Um, I think it, again, guitar solo maybe top five for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's I I, I got to go back to that guitar solo episode we did, but it's it's up there, and uh, the guitar work in general and the songwriting is what does it for me. Yeah, I I think it's wonderful. My my first exposure I think to that song, uh, was just one where I I heard it and it's like. Wow, this is really a really solid track, mm-hmm. and you know, musically, it's just got something really special about it. You know, it's funny like talking about all these songs and you're using these words that are kind of intangible, like special and beautiful. You know, you're not, you know, you feel like you want to quantify it in some way because it's so great. But you know, it really is. There's these moments of these songs where it's just you can't explain it. They just the band comes together really well, mm-hmm. and it's they produce something that I think is unlike. A lot of the other stuff they did mm-hmm. and yeah lyrically if you can get there it's it's i think it's a good track um although i heard some critique of it on time machine because of where it was placed with other songs uh it was placed with uh what were the other songs free will and what was it brought up to believe so some people were like oh neil's you know critiquing and coming down on religion and all this type of stuff. <laughs> i doubt it yeah <laughs> so you know it's just nonsense like that but People are crazy. Yeah, it was a great addition to the live the live sets once they brought it back. We get to sort of the wish them not the wish them well slot, but this you know similar on Vapor Trails. I think this section of the album had got very dark on Vapor Trails and kind of went to a different place, and that wasn't a bad thing. It was cool. This album does a similar thing where it's just I don't know if it's darker, 
maybe a little darker, but but it, it just kind of it veers off path for just a second, off course. Yeah, for like you know two I mean? tracks. Yeah, or so. just just like as sort of like a palate cleanser. Like, hey, here's just to keep everything in context. Here's something a little bit different. Well, I think it's like a, like a mood of any any person. You know, you're not gonna go walking around the streets every day just like you know happy or, or whatever this baseline is that you carry. You're gonna you're gonna swing out and come back mm-hmm. once in a while, and I, I think that that this does that for the album. You've always been the biggest uh, defense for Bravest Face and Good News First. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bravest Face. These were the two tracks I think it were easiest to say these won't be performed live on that tour. And when you look at the album, I was like, I don't. They're just they'd be complicated. They're they're different moods that are required to to enjoy them. Uh, but Bravest Face is a lot of layered guitar parts oh, that absolutely. I don't think they could recreate very easily. Yeah, I think that's the the thing that hurts it the most. Mm-hmm. I think there are quite a few people that probably like that tune. Sure. I would imagine. Because um, it's a great tune. There, It gets very emotional in the middle and very... Um, see, like like you said, I'm running out of adjectives. Yeah. But it's big. It grows and grows and grows. And, and finally, you get to the peak, and it's it's this wash of sound in the middle of this track. Yeah. In the whole wide world, there's no magic. You know, like, it's, yeah. it's big. It's in your face. And it starts off with this nice, soft guitar part. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really great tune. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of the album speaks to me, it, you know, You've always been clear. It's one of your top three albums. For me, it's probably about number four. Mm-hmm. It's close, but the, all the, my favorite three, you know, I think they just beat it out by just a little bit. Um, Which is mine, except Hemispheres is in there. Right, Hemispheres is is in Replace the Snakes. But yeah, I, I think a lot of it that, you know, there's a lot of parts of the album that speaks to me lyrically. Um, m- musically, yeah, it's a great album. Sonically, it's well done. There's a few of the lyrics I think really speak to me, and I think... There's elements of Bravest Face that I think do as well. Um, I think that's the you know the the one line, uh, you know, though we might have precious little, you know, it's still precious uh-huh. type of thing. And yeah, it's just something that I can I can really relate with. Uh, this song features the soaring guitar sound that I'm in love with. Yeah, uh, from the very get go. Though we might have precious little, it's still precious. And you hear da 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 da, like it's. I don't know how he does that or what combination of effects he uses, but I love it. Um, unlike Vapor Trails episode, we're running out of time because we have we're back in the studio, but we'll uh, we'll we'll do our best to cover the rest. Uh, good news first is it's definitely a sister song mm, to Bravest Face, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, you, I said stubbornly that it was the weakest on the record when the album first came out, and you were like, I don't think it is. Yeah. You're like, I think it's really good. And um, uh, let's hear it. <laughs> Boy, uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I think that you know, like Bravest Face. You know, there's sonically. I think it, it goes into a different place for me on on the album, and, and that's something I think I gravitated towards right away. Uh, I think it's also. I think it's one of the the songs that uses the Moog right back back mm-hmm. on the uh, the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's got some great older elements to it and. You know, it does have this little bit of, uh, I don't know, cynicism to it, I guess. That's a little perhaps different for Neil at times. But I, I don't know. I just, I think it's a really good tune. It's just different than than a lot of the other. It's not Far Cry. It's not working Again, something a good album needs. Right. You know? Um, 
reminds me a bit of the way the wind blows in the middle with mm. that sort of bluesy Stevie Ray kind of uh, kind of guitar sound. Sure. Maybe like a throwback to earlier in the album. But yeah, you won't find us hating on those two tracks. No, definitely, definitely not me. Uh, Malignant Narcissism is the third instrumental. And man, I thought this track was the greatest thing. Yeah. It's cool to have a track that's, you know, we all know Neil recorded it on like three drums. Right, yeah. A really small kit. It's cool to have a track that's two minutes long. Yeah, it, used to, it used to be a song when I lived back in upstate New York and I'd work literally like a two and a half minute ride, you know, from where I, I lived. You know, when I worked there, I would just pop it in and just blast it to my job like two and a half minutes later and have this like sense of, you know, accomplishment of like getting through a great tune, you know, on my way to work. But yeah, it's it's really it's a great song. It's 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 something that I think I've wanted. You know, yeah, main monkey business I think surpasses it in a lot of levels. But it gives you something that it doesn't, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of short, concise, and it's just kind of balls to the wall, like all the way through. And it's sort of a nod to YYZ with those drum bass breaks. Yeah, absolutely. And that second one where Getty goes. I thought that was, the, I said to my dad, I'm like, that is the greatest bass lick he has ever written. And he looked at me, he's like, you are crazy. He's like, that's nothing. Yeah, There's yeah, nothing yeah. special. He's like, it's good, but it's like, it's just a whatever. He's, I, he, he's a bassist too. So I went home and learned it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like, it's not that hard, but it's still the coolest it's, sounding it's, thing ever. Yeah. It's not, it's a step away from being chromatic in a sense. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. And it does that thing that Getty from like Test for Echo on has, is, uh, becoming known for where he goes up the neck on one string but is droning the string below it right. while he's doing that. Uh, features that really nicely. Yeah, another thing, I, I know we got to move on, but yeah. one thing I'll say is on that that documentary regarding the recording of Snakes and Arrows, just how this track came to be is really cool. You know, Getty was recording vocal parts for another song and he got this uh, brand new jazz bass in from Fender, a Jocko Pistorius uh, you know the fretless yeah and he's just sitting there noodling on it between takes and you know the producer had the the vocal mic on and you could hear him noodling on this little riff and he's like that's a song and Getty's like nah, I'm just messing around and he's like no no he's like that's a song you have to make that a song and he's like we can do another instrumental and Getty's like we already have some. he's like no <laughs> we can do three instrumentals so I think it's it's really great how it just kind of came into existence I like that Alex, I mean, let's let's be honest. Alex was thrown onto this track. Yeah, he wasn't I even like there that, when it happened. I like that he he didn't try to make anything happen. He was like, "Oh, you you guys wrote the song. The song is done." He's like, "What am I gonna do?" A chord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just holds this. He hits that first note and lets it ring for twenty minutes, and he's just got his arms up in the air like, <laughs> "I have done my job." Yeah, not not in like a a disrespectful way just like nope this is what the song needs yeah it needs one big fat a chord <laughs> yeah he he said that you know he came back you know to the studio and this was recorded and he was just like where where do i come in like you know it's so dominant with the rhythm section and it's so well done he i think it was a real challenge for him mm-hmm. to actually be like this is what i need to do and, you know, you see the footage of him in the studio and he's like at his laptop and he's like up at like two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> like figuring out what it is he's got to do to make this track work. And, and you mentioned it like we got to acknowledge Nick, whatever is what's his face. Bouge. Bouge. None of us can say his last name because 
like way to hit it out of the park with producing yeah and and, and being a creative voice with stuff like that like pushing them pushing all three of them we've seen examples of it through that documentary yeah and say no you like make make the freaking song man like it's a song already you're going to do this yeah uh we love that guy and obviously sonically he, he's yeah we love it yeah uh we hold on is a track that the two of us initially were like this is great we need to hear this live uh we both agreed in fact we met over a set list a dream set list on facebook some paid. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it was, it was some people were talking about what's your dream set list for Rush. And you had all you had my set list, baby. You had yeah. all the tracks, and then you ended with "We Hold On" just like I did. Yeah. And we thought and that's when I messaged you and we started talking. We 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 met on the Tinder of of uh, the Rush Tinder uh, on the internet. Yeah, you s- swipe one way for Red Sector <laughs> A, swipe the other so, for. <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we both thought uh, that would be a great tune to end a set list. With they never they would never do that. Yeah, you know. I, I think it's a great tune for any set list. I think to have it at the end of the night. I think it's the sentiments in that song are really strong and powerful. And I think that if you were to end a show with it, it would really be a, a great statement for for the band and for the show. And again, it's quick. It's a nice like kind of throw to, throw together. It, it sounds like it's thrown together quickly. I don't know if that's the case or not. And it's it's four minutes thirteen seconds as longer than it seems. It feels like it's two minutes long. It does. It doesn't seem that long at all to me. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a good tune. The I think the writing on it's really strong. I think mm. uh, the sonically, I, I don't know. It, it it seems different than some of the other tunes on the album as well. I think everything, you know, there's a, a different palette i guess for all these different songs like if you were to paint them out like some would be these colors of blues and purples and others would be yeah so it's its own different palette i think and i don't know i I think it's it's well executed and it's it closes up the album the way i wish exactly this is how i want snakes and arrows to end right the the last couple seconds of this track like though that's an important thing for me as a listener i need those last couple seconds of the last track to be important and to say something, and for this one to go down, 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 and then have Alex come back in with those few little arpeggios, yeah. down, 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 then everybody back in for one big note. How many? What was the last album that ended like that? Jeez, I don't know. I, I mean, guess I'll... maybe uh, Out of the Cradle ended with like everybody in together, but uh, and uh, okay, and Carve Away the Stone. So maybe that's that's happened in the past, but uh. This for some reason that big one big hit. It's a live ending. It's a limelight ending. I, I you think, know yeah, and I think it's probably one of the best album closers that they have in their catalog. Yes, for for the album. Not saying like it's the best song that ends an album, but it's the best closer for an album. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best at least. Yes. Um, yeah, I kind of forgot that we sort of bonded over We Hold On at it's the like, very beginning. It's like the bow tie on top of the box, you know? Just Whatever you say, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to say that Neil's drum set for this tour was aesthetically, that's all I need is a that bright red candy and red. black drum set. Yeah. And it, you know what? The like, I'm, I'm very aware of branding, whether it's like sports or ads or whatever. Sure. And uh, the Snakes and Arrows brand was confusing. Because it had this light purple for the album cover, for as a whole the tour the the live d- 
disc. What color was their rug on stage? Was it black? No, it was, was it, it was also red, I think, right? It red with with the uh, circle the, snake. The snake. I believe, yeah. Couldn't remember if it was red or black. So that. red happened to be like the theme live, but the record was like a dark blue and purple. Mm-hmm. And then the live disc came out for sale and it was the road sign. Right. I, I do not care for that live album cover as much as their other stuff. Really? You like- I, I, I dig that a lot. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Uh, but then yellow sort of became the thing, not just because of the cover, but... Because of the sign and... And uh, they have that Alex, Alex's head and it's all green. Oh, with the... You know, there's <laughs> just like, it's tough to kind of grab hold to the It doesn't theme. have a central theme, really. It's kind of all over the In place. In terms of its brand, you right. know, if yeah. that makes any sense. Like clockwork, it's very clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, not that any of that matters. Yeah. Well, I just want to ask you this before we get going. You know, I mentioned earlier about live tunes, and we kind of went through all these tracks. You know, who knows Russia's future, but just forget that for a second. What songs or song do you think that they would bring back for a tour? Like if Snakes and Arrows happened in the 90s or the 80s, and they had all this touring left to do. Sure. Which one, which track do I think would come back? Do, do you think we'll get any of, would we get any of the, like, do they love any of the tracks enough that yeah. they would bring it back? Yeah. Is like, there any ones that they didn't do? Number one, Spindrift. I think Spindrift would, would come back if there were more tours. Uh, I think if R40 weren't themed with yeah. the backwards traveling, that it may have appeared. Um Obviously, Far Cry, Work in the Mangels, I think, are both tracks that would reappear. But do you think any of the 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 tracks that made that initial like seven or eight songs that they played live on Snakes, on you know the Snakes tour, do you think we would ever hear Armor and Sword again? Do you think oh. we would ever hear? You know, yeah, that's that's a much tougher question. I don't, uh, I don't think we would hear Armor because these tracks all feel like Snakes and Arrows and they fit that second set of that tour, which was very clearly like, all right, buckle down. We're going to play the new shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I don't think we would hear... I can't hear it like they end Free Will and then they play Armor and Sword and then they jump into Dreamline. Like, I don't know. That's yeah. not going to... That's the same thing I say with The Garden. Everyone's like, oh, they're going to play The Garden on R40. I'm like, Really? Because our, the garden was Clockwork Angels. That was the end chapter of that story, and it fit in that set like that. I don't. I can't hear them ending one little victory, playing the garden, and then playing Tom Sawyer. I can't hear that happening. I mean, I was actually surprised on R40 when Main Monkey Business made it on. Uh, it caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. It, it really did. And. I was pleasantly surprised because I love the song, but I think that that's a test. Hopefully, that's a test, a testament to how much they love that track or feel it's worthy of coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I said, I I hope we hear "We Hold On" live in some capacity mm-hmm. or "Bravest Face." One of those two tracks that we haven't heard, yeah. or three tracks. Yeah, something like that. Would be, I remember would when be the good. album first came out. You said, "I think when Rush is done." with their career, we will have heard everything on Stinks and Arrows. Do you remember saying that? I do remember saying and I, that. At the time, I could see that because um, we're only three away, right? It, actually, we were four away. We got Faithless and we're just wait, waiting for those other three, but uh, something tells me they're going to be buried forever. I want to do an episode about that once we're done with the album series. I want to really talk about these songs that will, if Rush is done, will have never seen the light of day. I, I would just like to see them do a one-off concert someday 
Well, they just play all the songs that they've never played live. And, and maybe wanted to. It yeah. lit, like, literally do it once. Yeah. Do one concert, record it, and sell it. Yeah. And guess what? We would all buy it. Yeah, we would. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, I'm no glad worries. we got a chance to do this. I'm sorry that we were rushed. Ha-ha. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to be in the studio with you. I know I haven't been doing my correspondent work too well uh, over the last few months. I've been a little absent. So You're busy with school. It's all good. I know how that is. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And let me know about snakes. I want to know if you, uh, you share the love. Okay. Sound good? Sounds good. Man. See you guys later. Bye.